North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. So, Dr. Koontz, we've spent a number of episodes now dancing around World War I and its context. The reason being to try to better understand our own. I'm not sure that I understand my own context at all. Uh, and I'm not sure I understand the value of World War I. Other than that, you've made the point very clear that I understand too much of World War II. That, that I've got. Okay, so so my framework as an American has an overemphasis on World War II's value and our success being a matter of the nurture of our, di- our ideology. That it, yeah. is, it is what we think about ourselves that's made us great right. and see World War II. So I get that. But I'm still trying to see what I can learn from World War I other than what I see as the the fragility of elite society when it ties itself to, I don't know, uh, elite dreams. I, I want to say globalism, yeah. um, but you know, what was globalism the cause of World War One? Maybe not exactly. 
Hmm. So, no. so with that, without there, you know, um, see if you can tie that knot again for me. Sure. I don't see the two world wars as terribly distinct from each other. And if they had happened, say in the 12th century BC, historians would just call them all one war. Right. Right. The 20 <laughs> years war or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And call it good. Yeah. Yeah. Or even in the middle ages and, or, you know, the 17th century. So I don't see them as terribly distinct from each other. They are, they are distinct in the sense that the things that happened in the twenties and thirties, some of which we've talked about, such as the Spanish civil war could be seen as proxies, but especially because that conflict precedes the second world war, reading it as completely, you know, just a dress rehearsal for the second world war and not also the, the outflow from political instability caused by the first world war, even in non-belligerent nations such as Spain would be, would be foolish. I don't, I don't really see the two world wars as distinct except in chronology and, you know, campaign details. They occur because we are, we, you know, Europeans and the United States of America, and then some of the British colonies are accepting the burden of and fighting for the privilege of bearing the burden of world hegemony. The stakes are no longer who's going to be, you know, the king of Austria or who's going to be in control of, you know, Canada or the American Midwest, like with the French and Indian War, which is a sort of offshoot of what some people think was a world war in the 18th century. I, I disagree with that. In both, both the world wars in the 20th century, we are, the stakes are hegemony, the precise ideological framing of that hegemony, yes, differs between the first and the second world wars. It has a much more specific and specifically useful to the left framing after the second world war. Good as defined by the media, good pursued by military means. The first world war, the reaction against many of the things as we've discussed that we were supposed to be doing in like an idealistic sense was much stronger. We reverted much more sharply in the United States to an attempt at pre-war conditions of life and also political life that than we did with the Second World War. I mean, Harding ran in 1920 on the platform of a return to a word he probably invented by accident, normalcy, not normality, but normalcy. It's a return to normalcy. We closed down immigration in a very big way, and we decided that we didn't want to be involved with even projects that we ourselves had propagated, such as the League of Nations. And that's very different from the Second World War. So ideologically, the wars are very distinctive, and the Second World War is much more important to know about in its specific ideological fathers, let's say, and its framers afterward especially in the media. But the First World War is very much like the second and is really the father of the second in its combatants, in its framing, and especially in its desire for the victor to possess some kind of world political and thus also ideological hegemony. 
So that's its importance. I mean, it's it's sort of like saying, well, I'm really interested in Appomattox, but I don't really care about Fort Sumter. Well, that's fine. You don't have to care about Fort Sumter. And maybe you just want to go visit Appomattox every year and find out about the end of the Civil War. But you should care about Fort Sumter too. And you should care about the Lincoln-Douglas debates and the stuff that came before it because there, there is no Appomattox without Fort Sumter. So that's how I think about the First World War. It is the Fort Sumter of world hegemony strife. And the end of that would be VJ Day. Hmm. Uh, I may not have been able to follow that last part of it. I'm, I'm wrapped up in this idea, uh, which is that the the great wars, the great 20th century wars, can we, can we coin what they're going to be called in the future? Uh, the great 20th century wars uh, are a endpoint of colonialism collapsing in on itself with uh, new powers that are sort of underneath where the colonialism came from that are trying to assert themselves. And so you have uh, Western Europe having to colonize Europe, uh, having to stop it from being taken over from underneath. Uh, and in that sense, uh, you have Britain really uh, having had power over the whole earth now having to reconverge that power on its doorstep to prevent its own collapse as sort of the final colonial power um, that was successful. Uh, Russia becomes a very interesting like piece of all of that to me. But so tear that apart or agree with it. What, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think the connection to, to colonialism is really helpful because what is undecided at the end of the First World War, partly because of American retrenchment, is who is actually going to be the hegemon or will there be a multi-headed hegemon? Will that be the British still? But there is not the utter loss of self-confidence also in their colonial projects that you see with the European powers after the Second World War, right? And the key thing after the Second World War, and I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, is that after the Second World War, the world order, right? So... <laughs> Just, just set aside every Freemasonic thing you've ever heard about the phrase New World Order. Don't worry about that right now. We could talk about multiple world orders in the same sense. We could talk about multiple American republics for various historical reasons. Hey, but you he heard it here first. Coots is for the New World Order. He is an operative. <laughs> we really got you with that one, didn't we? Yeah. No, that's – I mean, isn't that obvious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the world order after the First World War is not stable. It, it's not – it's, it's not clear and it is given to really obscure people. I mean, no one remembers the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which is somehow about, you know, maybe stopping war forever again. This is an idealistic project that in which even some American government officials will indulge in the 20s. It's, it's not a stable world order, but the European powers who have so, for so long taken on themselves not in a coordinated fashion, but in a competitive fashion, the government of the world did not decide that they had no right to do that in the 20s and 30s, right? Decolonization happens as a kind of suicide project after the Second World War, because nationalism, which was exalted in maybe Eastern Europe or parts of Central Europe after the First World War, is exalted everywhere after the second and also racialized, right? So, so all whites ruling anywhere in the world that there are non-whites 
are wrong categorically. Eventually, this will reach the United States, even though whites are a majority in the United States still to this day. But it it reaches, obviously, Rhodesia. It reaches the Portuguese colonies. It reaches the French colonies and it reaches the British colonies. And so, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm being morally neutral about that right now. I'm just saying that's what happened. And But that does not happen after the First World War. The First World War does not have the same... There is a sense of disillusionment, but not of utter civilizational crisis that you get in Europe after the Second World War. And the hegemon after the Second World War is the United States of America, which has for a very long time intervened idealistically on the side of lots of non-European peoples. I mean, that was part of our justification for Cuba, which we thought about taking over as another state at various times in American history. So all of that is very different between the two world wars. I, I still see the first world war as the father of those differences and the father of the second world war. And, and that's why it matters. It, it has other things that, you know, are distinctive about it. We'll talk about prohibition today, but because it is the father of the second, I don't really see them as distinctive conflicts. It's just one long fight over hegemony. The shape of that hegemony is going to be very different by the time everything's done in 1945. What is the root of the ideological suicide that you talk about? Like what really caught, I mean, is it just, yeah. well, we were idealistic and now we shot each other too much and weapons are bad and we just shouldn't exist. I mean, is yeah. it really that simple? Sure. It is not complex, but it is profound to say that when a nation goes to war, generally her best men, when it's a nation, I don't just mean a part of a nation, but generally her best men are going to die in greater proportion and that therefore the options left to the remnant population, which will be more female than it was before, which will have probably fewest of its men of both energy and talent alive at the end, will be a different nation than the nation that preceded it. This is, this is recognized actually, you know, let's just reframe one more thing while we're at it. This is recognized by pretty much everyone in the Northern United States after its victory in 1865, is that we're not the same country, we're sicker, we're more criminal. I mean, internally, this has nothing to do with whether we were right or wrong to defeat and burn the South. It has to do with our sense of ourselves and that we have been weakened by this effort. So that obviously is not experienced by Americans to anything like the same degree that it is by the French, by the British, not to speak of the Germans or the Russians, people who actually lose one or more world wars. So that, that is not something that is quantifiable in the sense that, okay, here are the, you could maybe do this as a kind of prosopography. You could take, you know, the Oxford University class of 1912 and see who's alive at the end of it. But that is how the men who are going through it at the time think about it, right? Tolkien is in this little group that he's had since the equivalent of American high school called the Tea, Tea Club and Barovian Society. And most of them are dead by 1918. And it is Tolkien's firm conviction that the best of them are dead. And I don't think that's simply a piece of sentimentality. I think it's the reality that especially when combat is involved with mass populations, your bravest men are going to die in a much higher proportion than your weak men or your men who were scared or your men who never got there and didn't try. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then what that does is it leaves you with a society with a lower risk capacity, uh, with a higher need to console and yes. protect and kind yep. of turn inward. Yep. Um, and uh, I can't help but think, since it's about uh, a proportion of female leadership, um, isn't it fascinating how all the great hopes for the Republican Party right now are are ladies? It's, it's really it's really fascinating. That's a throwaway line there. But um, okay, so from this, then uh, we spent last time talking about framing. And part of the framing is recognizing how many changes then that were this colonial backlash that Europe maybe experienced after World War One, but the U.S. Yeah. did not. But right. now after World War Two, the U.S. does. That there were many shifts in society that are I don't want to say if it's part of a project, but but it, it completely transformed the way that we view ourselves. And yeah. from where we stand now, it's hard to either know that those shifts took place, unless you listen to the show, right? right. Um, or uh, to imagine what it would be like to be in a civilization where these things uh, had not taken place. Right. And uh, so uh, from there, I mean, you want to bring in the distinction about visible and invisible and all that. But um, yeah, I think it's a good setup. Yeah, no, that's a great setup because the thing I want to talk about today and 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 maybe next time we'll see how how much time we need and, and how much time we take is prohibition because it is neatly encapsulated between basically the end of the First World War and the beginning of the Roosevelt administration in 1933. This is weird. That's just so yeah. weird. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's a drastic change. It's a change that's not unprecedented. There are dry places in the United States before then. There are other nations that try it at roughly the same time. Canada, New Zealand, both experiment with prohibition. It's a giant social project. The question, there, the reason to bring it up is because, because it is encapsulated, it enables us to see lots of things that on a longer time scale are harder to see because they're still ongoing and they still affect us. So because this is a completely politically dead question, the only remnants being in certain states such as Utah or Pennsylvania with histories of loving prohibition, you still have controls on the distribution of alcohol that you don't in many places, but th that's it. The, re the way in which it's at all pertinent today is as a common historical bugbear when we bring up the legalization of various currently controlled and or scheduled substances, which is an ever expanding menu, right? So, so cannabis legalization is very normal, at least as a discussion point in most American states. But if you go to an American city at this point, you're talking about, well, should we distribute, should we distribute this? Should we distribute that so that people have a safe way to be addicted to this drug? So they don't overdose. Yeah, safe way, which again, back to the, uh, sorry, but back to the um, good men have died in war. Now we are a maternalized culture with low yeah, risk capacity exactly. and need to yeah. console. Uh, now let's make sure all our boys don't get on these drugs, alcohol, right. all this, or let's make sure we give them the alcohol so they can feel better about themselves. I mean, both sides right. of it, it's got this nurturing. Oof. Yuck. Right. Yeah. And and that that discourse that is always a maternal one is is one that you will find after most wars in modernity because the government will always have a larger role in life mm. after most wars 
So this is this is where some of this framing is the political framing for these issues, especially drug legalization at this point, it is itself questionable because these things have long histories preceding them. So let's just talk about alcohol usage and production. And then we'll talk about government involvement with that because government involvement, I mean, just the government's having anything to do with these things is always of much more recent vintage than their existence. So yeah, hemp was raised throughout colonial America where people thinking this is something you should like somehow be able to smoke and smoke regularly, maybe smoke at the same time every day. And this would be like psychologically determinative for your life. No. Was the government involved in any of those calculations? No. So alcohol production and distribution in America is largely determined originally by environmental factors. So we drink less beer than the British because we have much less capacity to raise wheat in colonial America without its rotting. So we end up drinking a lot of cider, both sweet cider and hard cider. Whiskey is not originally drunk very widely, not even in the back country. Whiskey becomes a lot more common and, and popular, especially on the frontier as that expands West. Once the availability of rum through trade, because rum is a product of sugarcane and we don't, we don't really have anywhere in the United States that's tropical until we take over Florida and no one lives in South Florida for a long time. So we're getting rum shipped from the Caribbean as that closes down, or as we have difficulty getting that, and you can't really ship that over the Appalachian mountains very effectively, uh, people switch to other things. The point is that American alcohol usage is in the 18th and especially in the 19th century really has very little to do with family settings or even anything that's moderate in alcohol. It's all pretty highly alcoholic (laughs) and it really has to do with like release. So workers, men by themselves, men kind of, you know, in places where they're alone, like work gangs are going to be drinking this stuff and cider hard cider is a big element in American political campaigning. Um, provision of cider is very important on election day and getting people drunk is very important on election day, especially in cities in order to get them to vote multiple times, which is probably how Edgar Allan Poe died (laughs) (laughs) from from what effectively we would call an overdose after being kidnapped to vote on election day. (laughs) So, so it's, it's pretty rough. Okay. We have a, we have a rough history of alcohol usage by contrast, for example, Italians still have a lower rate of alcoholism than British or Scandinavians or Americans. And that, that probably has something to do with their drinking, both something that's lower in alcoholic content, commonly wine, but also drinking it with family as part of a meal. Right. We're not, we're not really consuming much in that way. The closest we have is ale, which is at this time still something distinct from beer. It's even lower and it, it's definitely lower in hops. It's a traditional English drink, but even that is relatively unavailable if you get, if you get too far west of the coast in early America. So we have a lot of people drinking pretty hard. Okay. This is going to create what's at first called the temperance movement. And, and that means just what it says. It means 
advocacy for things that will moderate people's drinking, not the abolition of drinking altogether. Okay, so they're not, they might advocate beer instead of some kind of liquor, or they might advocate less liquor, or they might advocate even one of the fathers of American wine in Cincinnati, believe it or not. The Ohio Valley is kind of our original wine region in a big way, advocates wine as more healthy, right? Uh, more healthful than, you know, drinking whiskey constantly. So the temperance movement starts out in the early Republic, which is kind of roughly between the end of the revolution and the 1850s advocating less. Okay. Just, just less in every way. And there are lots of movements for this. There are movements in churches. There are also movements outside churches pretty much. And this is just a little aside for listeners. Eventually, basically every church in the United States, every denomination is going to have some movement for temperance, except the Lutheran church. <laughs> and, and by that, I mean, specifically the confessional Lutheran church. So you're kind of more, much more theologically Americanized Lutherans kind of colonial descended Lutherans are going to be okay with temperance. Some of them are actually going to be okay with teetotalism, which is something different. Eventually we'll talk about that. Well, I, I can see why Lutherans would be against teetotalism. Yeah. I, why they're against temperance. I mean, I, I get it. They're Germans and something like that. Right. But yeah. like, why is that? This is interesting. Yeah. I mean, some of it is cultural and, and that, that has something to do with one of the visible factors we'll talk about, but some of it too is purely economic in that major players in your 19th century German Lutheran denominations are always going to be brewers, especially in cities. They are usually your wealthiest men in the first generation. Huh. And, and so it really is in no one's financial interest in the Lutheran church to oppose the distribution of alcohol. Whereas for instance, like a denomination that really has nothing to do with brewing in any kind of coherent way, like the, you know, various Methodist churches, they can have preachers running around saying that, you know, the saloon is the den of demons and it's, it's, you know, it's demon, demon liquor. And they can quite literally demonize the production and distribution of alcohol because they really have no financial stake in it. We, we do, we have it in a pretty big way, especially in cities like New York or St. Louis or, or Milwaukee, certainly. So that's, that's one of the, that's one of the issues. Temperance is going to shade into and eventually come almost to be eclipsed, certainly as a political force by teetotalism. That shift is probably around the time of the civil war and that is because, and I'm getting this from various people, there's a book called Marching Home. It's, it's really pretty partisan in historical terms, but it's interesting as a study of the experiences of union veterans. There's also a book called The Republic of Suffering about the home front and its aftermath in the Civil War by Drew Gilpin Faust. And they both tell you how much more people were drinking by the time the Civil War was over. Not just the veterans. <laughs> So there's a phrase that was used at the time and, and is actually used after the First World War as well called the coarsening of life. This would be something like American public life, people using more casual, not, not swear words exactly, but kind of off-color language. I think everyone notices that in the past 20 years for us. For sure. They, yeah, they would talk about the coarsening of life 
And one of those was just public consumption, being publicly drunk, public alcoholism, those kinds of things are, are happening by contemporary accounts as we get into the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. That will eventually give, give rise to something, but I want, I want to stop before I go too far you know, see if you want to, you want to keep tracking or you want me to clarify something. No, no, before it, we go it all, it all is, it all is leaning into, I mean, where I'm really curious about is prohibition again, yeah. uh, because it's between world war one and world war two during this right. time of retraction during this time where, uh, we are not going for the changes that, uh, will eventually become normalized for us. But part of that is this hard punch where we've gone from, okay, temperance, okay, maybe we shouldn't all be drunk in the streets to right. it is the the demon's drink and we better vote this out. Right. Yeah. Teetotalism is a push, not, not everywhere, not among all sectors, but what is, I, I would say, very, very visible besides how we end up drinking more alcohol is who is drinking the alcohol. That is that after the Civil War, between the Civil War and World War One, we also bring in in enormous numbers, especially Germans, but also but also Italians, and and a lot more Irish. Those are probably your groups that are most prominent in having drinking cultures that are vastly different than the one that I just described. Mm-hmm. And so they will have no sympathy with a push for prohibition or or even teetotalism as a personal profession, which which involves putting a big T on a certain list in a public ceremony that says that you are, you are teetotal, you are totally temperate, meaning you don't drink any alcohol. That's what that means. And then sometimes you would literally get on a wagon in a public parade to signify your, you know, adherence to this philosophy of teetotalism. It's revivalism on a new level, man. Yeah, it is. Well, it is revivalism because it's indigenous to kind of American kind of, colonial descended American religious culture. Yeah. Utterly. That's why it looks the way it does. You get on the wagon and when you fall off the wagon, that's, that's when you're out of the group because you started drinking again. That's where it comes from. Got it. There you go. Sure. So, so, you know, Lutherans have nothing to do with that. Catholics have almost nothing to do with that. There will be Catholics who, who support prohibition. They're not any large percentage of Catholics, <laughs> but what they, what they also bring is vastly different food and drink cultures. And the idea that like drinking is bad is as foreign to them as the idea that like, you know, playing sports on Sunday is bad. They don't have that conception of Sunday in Germany or Italy or France. So all of that, this kind of greater, like in this case, ethnic diversity of the United States is going to lead to not a discontinuity with the pushing of temperance, but it's political fate. Because what you will get prior to the bringing in of the amendment to the constitution that's going to authorize prohibition, and then it's, it's authorizing act called the Volstead Act, is you will get Volstead, I believe, was a senator from California that kind of tells you what California was like in 1919. It was <laughs> it was pretty different than it is today. It certainly wasn't liberal in any sense is that you you get resistance from the first to this because you have you have I didn't mean this for, for this to be a pun you have dry runs on prohibition you before the word vintage earlier as well to describe oh, the I know, I, even, I know. It's <laughs> like if I'm making a pun it's because I'm stupid it's not because I'm thinking <laughs> of it you get because you get states overwhelmingly 
kind of colonial descended it, at the, the the term at the time is colonial stock American states like Maine or places in the American South where all the whites are basically you know colonial descended. Their drinking culture is you're either destroyed by this or you're drinking nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's no actual and temperance in their movement. There's there no temperance is not actually an option in this kind of colonial descended American drinking culture because beer is not is not much of an option and otherwise people are are getting drunk very frequently. So what becomes increasingly popular is the idea that you just shouldn't drink at all. At first, this is an idea within rather obscure circles of certain churches. So the guy that begins to push grape juice in New Jersey, well, he eventually gets to New Jersey, Mr. Welch, Thomas Bramo Welch. His son is the one that will make Welch's a big thing, but he's going to raise Concord grapes, which are from New England. That's why they're called Concord. He's going to raise Concord grapes and press them and then drink the juice immediately before that's going to be used for communion before fermentation can even occur. At the time in the 1870s, not even the other people in his Methodist church go along with him. So the, what, what happens here is that a very, I think, <laughs> niche idea about health, of which there are many in 19th century America, graham crackers, Mormons forsaking coffee and tea, niche ideas. If you can push them long enough and fervently enough, you can get a lot accomplished. Because this niche idea that succeeds for a while in Maine, maybe succeeds for a while in this county in Alabama, will eventually be pushed on the whole country when it's combined with something that is, that is largely invisible, which is the growing political power of women after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Okay. They will be mobilized at first through voluntary organizations. The Women's Christian Temperance Union is the most famous one which is very big in kind of the Great Plains and then the Western states as an attack on saloons, but will eventually come to be a force when combined with the political organization of largely ministers, but just generally, you know, just men generally, who feel that it is a moral imperative that America not willingly addict itself to something that is destroying its families and its livelihoods and its country. That's the thinking about what alcohol is. Obviously, that's a thinking not framed by German beer, not framed by Italian wine, okay? But it's a thinking framed by alcohol is basically something a little dirty, separate from the home. And when you consume it, you're consuming things that are really pretty high in alcohol content, often with other men. And you're, you're doing it because it's fun or it releases you, or you're doing it just because it's what we've always done. And it's normal to get this drunk or to be this way or, or whatever. That's the lead up, including a couple of experiments with this, especially in the North, both the Northwest and the Northeast with local or state versions prohibition. That's going to get us to the advocacy for this during the first world war. The last factor I think that we haven't really discussed is something that as just a kind of a favorite story of mine and just an interest of mine, which is California wine. And <laughs> that is that uh, California wine, which is now world famous since maybe the 1970s was still kind of disdained as late as the mid seventies, late seventies, even in the United States, California wine was pretty big already before the first world war. It 
they're producing. I mean, it, you know, we could talk about, I could talk about wine for a very long time. I don't think they had blushes yet. Let's just say that. They hadn't come well, up with that, no, that amazing No, they thing. didn't. But they weren't doing what they do now, which is called varietal labeling, where they're like, this is a, you know, a Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, this is a, this is a, what you know, this is whatever else. They weren't labeling by the grape variety that they're using. They were labeling it and they were just saying, this is California champagne. This is California burgundy. This is California, whatever. And selling, and they were selling it worldwide and, and sometimes outselling burgundy in a competitive market somewhere because it tasted better or whatever, you know, consumers wanted. The thing is they had a number of vineyards that they would only reach again after places like Napa and Sonoma and stuff exploded. So you have, you have more productive wine vineyards in California prior to the first world war, prior to prohibition, than you're ever going to get again until about the 1990s. And the reason for that is you have a capacity to produce largely driven at that point by Italian immigration, right? Largely driven by Italian immigration, Italian and German, uh, that German, some German immigration into Napa. Charles Krug Winery is probably one of the oldest in Napa, and that's that's a German immigrant. By immigration from these, you know, new sources of of you know people living in America that just have a different, a totally different outlook <laughs> on alcohol, and also an interest in wine specifically that Americans hadn't really had, except maybe relatively wealthy Americans in colonial times when we really are an outpost of Europe in a very concrete way, also in what we eat and drink. And so they're going to succeed rather enormously prior to the First World War. What's going to change during the First World War are the political opportunities for getting things amended. And the people who are pushing for prohibition to go nationwide are people who understand that it's much easier to get things to happen on a state level and thereby to amend the constitution than to try to start with the federal government. So they want to force the federal government's hand and they're going to do that through the states. And they're going to collect power in this way that they're going to use the Republican party almost entirely, the Democratic party being completely opposed to prohibition almost everywhere. Catholics and Missouri Synod Lutherans being almost entirely Democrats, not coincidentally at this time. They're going to use the Republican Party, and they're also going to use something that exists already before 1919 on the state level, but will become at roughly the same time as prohibition in this immediate post-war time. They're going to use something that is going to be enormously powerful in favor of protecting our nation from from alcoholism, protecting our children. And that is the power of women's suffrage. So advocacy for women's suffrage, which was sort which was also sort of a niche issue, flows together with prohibitionism and gets both done at roughly the same time, even nationally, despite the fact that it's not really in the you know political or economic interest of one of America's largest states, even back then, California. It's not really popular in any major American city anywhere. <laughs> but combined with one major party and two niche interests, you can get a lot done. It seems really strange to me as I think about that. So like like an amendment on women's suffrage required a bunch of men to vote for it. And this was in response to the women asking for it, right? Um, And yet you're saying that that is in spite of it being unpopular 
in a lot of places. And yeah. in order to achieve something that, uh, what did you call it earlier, the the Women's Christian Temperance Union? Union, yeah, yeah right. Yep. So, um, but it's just it's just did did they get a bunch of guys drunk and make them vote multiple times when they when they passed all this? <laughs> uh, I'm sure they did in Chicago, yeah. but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make um, light of addiction because yeah. you mentioned that earlier. And yeah. uh, it, one of the things that uh, crossed my mind when you were talking about release, this idea that that it would be healthy to release by inebriation right. uh, and how much of that is, is not release, but suppression. Usually yeah. an individual who's doing that, they're not trying to get out. Well, they are trying to get out, but they aren't getting out They're They're going deeper. And right. they're pressing down. Uh, they're not dealing with the issues that they need to deal with. So I don't want to make light of that at all. No. Um, and uh, it is fascinating to see. Uh, this is sort of like the, uh, forgive me, but the guns, germs, and steel approach uh, that you've got. Uh, much of this history having to do with what crop is being grown or growable at any given place or time uh, that enables certain things. But it all does lead to what is a sea change on like every single level of the way the right. society views itself in the name of preserving the family when it will be right. at our current time are you with me here like like it's kind of what's destroying the family uh, right. much of the same movement right yeah and and addiction is addiction is also visible to people who are affected and so if you are in you're, you're now enfranchising the half of the adult population that was not previously enfranchised what are they going to what are they going to vote on like on what basis are they going to make decisions what they can um, see. they're going to make decisions as as the men largely do as well on the basis of what they know and experience so if you're saying well we can get rid of you know what's probably one of the biggest causes of men beating women we can get rid of what's probably one of the biggest causes of, you know, your brother-in-law losing his job. This is not true at this point, not with alcohol in 2022, but in 1917, 1918, 1919, it certainly is. We can get rid of that politically. What are you going to vote for? Okay. What are you going to vote for? I mean, it, it makes sense. And the, the, the discussion of addiction, which is, which is not the, which is not really the discussion at the time. Okay, they're not using the same vocabulary, and a lot more agency is given to drunks in 1919 than is given to people that are hooked on much more powerful stuff today. So they'll talk about safe places. They'll talk about you need the you need a place to inject all this kind of thing. You're just somebody that needs this, and you're always going to have it. So we might as well give it to you in a safe way. That's not part of the discussion of prohibition. No one is saying that it is the government's responsibility to provide you with what you biochemically are dependent upon. It's your responsibility to clean up. We're going to make that easier by not allowing you to have access to the things that are preventing you from cleaning up. That's the idea. The then, problem I go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. Go the problem. The, pr- the problem I think there is that that framing was always was always dependent on an idea of alcohol as essentially evil that was never shared by probably even half of the electorate. It was was never shared by German Americans, Italian Americans. It probably wasn't even shared by most Anglo Americans. Jesus. Yeah. Honestly. Right. I mean, so what, what I'm saying is you can, you think you have like a niche issue 
Okay. And a lot of, if you're listening to the show, you don't have niche issues. Your, your issues are like, I don't want my children to be mutilated by their doctors. I don't want my children to be told about how to have sexual activity when they're in, you know, elementary school. These aren't, these aren't niche issues. They're extremely widespread and they're pretty obvious. This isn't like an intricate theological argument about how fruit of the vine doesn't really mean wine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. People got things done simply with energy and persistence in much more niche interests than anything that basically anybody who listens to this would ever be trying to do in your state or nationally or anywhere. Okay. You have it easy in terms of the things for which you are arguing or, or working compared to these people who were trying to overturn basically all precedent in the United States, except for very small places like Wyoming in saying, ah, oh, we should have women's suffrage and overturning all precedent in Western culture, which always permitted the use of alcohol. And in fact, for the vast majority of Americans who were Christians mandated the use of alcohol, at least in the sacrament. <laughs> Right. So you're, you're, you're pushing for things that are much less niche. So why would you be discouraged or confused or say, well, I didn't get it done this year? Well, they pushed for T. I mean, between Thomas Bramwell Welch and the Volstead Act is roughly 60 years. Okay. So don't get discouraged here. Right. <laughs> it may take a while, but you might get exactly what you want and so, more. So your lesson here today really is like, it's like, you know, brief issue power one-on-one lesson on prohibition, dude, impossible things happen. So try. Yeah, they like, do. That's they your, do. That's your I lesson. mean, I, okay. yeah, exactly. Because I think this was always politically extremely stupid. It was extremely stupid. This is assuming that everyone in, you know, you know, whatever, like, you know, Bear Lake Methodist Church in wherever Illinois sincerely thinks alcohol is demonic. Okay. You'd have to have a hundred percent of those people on board. And then you'd have to have the nation be composed of those people in order to make prohibition long-term workable. It was never going to be workable. And yeah, because it it's a theological point, right? And because it's a because it's a theological point imposed on a nation which has no theological unity on that point. Hmm. And, you know, there's so all kinds of... Then, I mean, to yeah. bring this right to right now, then, the theological yeah. point that men are not women and women are not... Are, or the men are women and women are men and you are whatever you want is something that is likewise unlikely and being imposed upon us kind of by legal force at the moment. And so we should be confident that it just, it can't possibly yes. survive. Yeah, right, exactly. Because, um, so this is a really interesting thing that's a wonderful book called The Winemaker by Richard Peterson. You can hear in his name, he's not Italian, originally from Des Moines, Iowa, actually. But he ended up making wine starting in the 50s, all the way down to maybe the 90s, uh, into the 2000s in California. And he had a very interesting observation because he, he was born in 1931. And one thing that the Volstead Act did not outlaw was home winemaking. So all the growers in California switched to these really, for the purposes of wine, horrendous grapes like Thompson Seedless, which they now use to make raisins. <laughs> but they switched to these really horrible grapes and they would ship you enormous. And they switched to those because they, they could endure, right? You, you can't ship, you know, uh, Cabernet grapes or Merlot grapes and from, you know, San Francisco and expect them to arrive in Des Moines in intact. 
So they ship Thompson seedless to anybody and they ship them in these containers and it would say something rather hilarious, like absolutely don't, you know, and then give a recipe for making an enormous amount of wine. Absolutely (laughs) don't do this with these grapes. I mean, it was really kind of funny, right? But the thing that he observed was after prohibition ends in 1933, the thing that we couldn't do in the wine industry, even as late as when he got into it in the late 1950s, even into the 60s, he said, we couldn't, we couldn't lower the alcohol content or the sugar content, which are obviously related in wine. We couldn't lower it as much as we wanted to. We had to keep blending things that we didn't really want to blend. And we certainly couldn't present just a straight Cabernet, right? At, at first, because Americans wouldn't drink it. They associated drinking with things that went down easy, that is, they were sweet, and got you drunk quickly. And he said, that's actually an artifact of prohibition. If you have ever, and he still could at certain, you know, early on in his career, you could still drink wines that had been made in California in say 1912. They were much lower in alcohol content than stuff people were making at home. So what prohibition did was it really increased people's appetite, pure, whatever the form for alcohol. Yeah. (laughs) Not for wine, not for beer, not for, you know, rye whiskey specifically or anything, just for alcohol. That's what people wanted. And so prohibition has this, I think, rather horrible anthropology behind it, which is if you outlaw it, it will stop. If you regulate it, you will control it. And that's what I think is misguided also about heroin injection sites today is that the government is trying to regulate something, whether to outlaw it or to control it and then to tax it and then get revenue. You can see why they're interested in doing that. I mean, that's, that's a basic interest in legalization, especially with state governments that need revenue because they can't print their own money. But there are... The, the basic mistake here is they're thinking that they can do something that will control human behavior. Yes, that's it. And they do not understand that it could have the opposite effect. There's just, there's just no insight of wisdom behind what they're trying to do. Now, that's, uh, that's the Tlaib black swan concept, right? Like you, you're, you cannot predict human behavior. Your scope will always be too small. And trying to wrap the future into something that you can foretell uh, eventually enables a fragility uh, that will be struck by something you could not foresee. Um, the the idea that um, specifically with regard to addictive behaviors, that outlawing them doesn't necessarily stop them, in fact, won't stop them, uh, but creates a market for them that is uh, not in the market uh, that I think that's the same thing that that uh, government regulation would do. Although I don't know, I don't know there, how much how much black market alcohol is there in the AB, outside ABC stores in New England, you know. Um, so they they've managed to keep control there, uh, as they have been legalizing uh, cannabis around the country. I don't know that illegal cannabis has exactly lost out uh, in that, given that it's right. cheaper and and whatnot, and the the legal enforcement of these things. I mean, if they're letting guys who shoot people up on a bail for twenty five thousand, you know, the guy selling uh, eighths on the street, he he's not going to jail. So, yeah. um, uh, I, I, for me, this is a question about. It is, it is theological. It is anthropological. It is a, 
because I don't think that the solution from my end is anything goes, nothing should be illegal. Um, right. Man will regulate himself, some kind right. of thing like that, right? But the other side of it is uh, if you try to make something illegal that's not really wrong, it's not going to work. Yeah. Right? You're gonna, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because you're, you're going to make exotic what should be domestic. Yeah. And therefore, it. you're going to make attractive what should be very plain and simple and, and relatively unattractive. And you're therefore exoticizing, for instance, being drunk, because it is something that men do. And when, when men are given something to do together, they will make it masculine, right? This is the discussion of sports statistics of other men's accomplishments. That's a very masculine activity at the current point in American history. Historically, it doesn't make much sense. Why are you bragging about what this other guy can do? Who cares? I, I don't live care. In his city, and I watch it all and stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, he is he is my team for the current thing. You know, so that you know, men will form groups and then make manly and masculine and respectable what they do in those groups. It doesn't mean that the activity is respectable. Absolutely, it just means that it's masculine. So if if you get drunk with other men, then being drunk is manly, right? It's not foolish. It's not shameful. It's not disgraceful. It's it's manly. It's valorized. So those are kinds of things that the government really neither has divine ordinance nor actual generally capacity to do anything about. Media, they can accomplish a lot more of that. But as such, you know, as a government force, they have relatively little capacity to do that. Their attempts to enforce these things throughout prohibition and part of the origin of what's now the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms originates in the prohibition in the, in the Bureau of Prohibition, which does exactly what it says. Those attempts will always be extremely limited and they will be for cosmetic purposes, right? So the issue here is that whether we're talking about public policy, like what do we give people access to? Should we just let them buy whatever they want, whenever they want? Is it you know, categorically self-destructive, okay, then maybe we shouldn't let them have it, right? Maybe we shouldn't let them have like xylazine, which is just, I mean, killing people in all sorts of horrible ways currently in Philadelphia. People think they want heroin, they're getting xylazine. It's, I mean, it's horrific. Just look it up. So no, let's, uh, let's control those things. Is that the same thing for whiskey? Is, is whiskey actually that bad? So then what do I remand into the sphere of just personal freedom and therefore also personal stupidity as well as personal wisdom? That's an acceptance of limits on both government capacity, okay, but also one person's ability to live life for another person that are much harder to adjudicate. And I think one of the failures of prohibition was the failure to have the insight that there is relatively little that another human being can do to control another adult human being right. within right. certain limits. And then you have to give people the freedom to be stupid and then to suffer punishment for being stupid. Right. That's where like, it, it seems to be also about uh, honor in some level. It is about whether or not your populace is a populace that desires good or whether yeah. they desire hedonism. And yeah. if they are ultimately about pleasure, it really doesn't matter what drug they're on, uh, whether it's, I, I can't pronounce the one you mentioned, you know, the heroin wannabe. Yeah, it's killing yeah. people. I mean, what my kids came home and told me, you know, they sell uh, Lucky Charms cereal now without the charms, it's just, or without the, the cereal. It's just a bowl of marshmallows you pour milk on. 
And like, I mean, I, I guess I don't distinguish a little bit here with uh, yeah. the, the lack yeah. of self-control, mm-hmm. the addiction level that's going on, the complete destruction of the body and mind that takes place. And, you know, here we have you know, whole populist groups hyper addicted to sugars. And uh, is, is the issue like, well, let's make sugar illegal or is the issue that they got nothing to live for? They got nothing to live for. And right. how do we uh, form civilization that has something to live for? And I, again, the lesson that you've taken out of this is, well, you start right now um, and you aim for your thing that's not niche, but actually in line with nature and you build and you believe that if someone can make something insane seem normal, it'll give yeah. yourself 60 years to be normal and see if you can't make that really uh, go a long way. Right. Yeah. Because you you have so much more on your side than than any anyone advocating alcohol prohibition ever did. You have culture, you have nature, you have people's biology itself pushing against what they're told they should be doing or thinking, pushing on your side for a desire for health or strength, for a desire to align their lives with what their biological sex is not just is assigned at birth, but is. So you have a lot more on your side to get depressed because you're not in charge of something is really just the refuge of a coward. You need, you need to push (laughs) and you have so much more pushing with you than, than any prohibitionist ever did. And, and look what they achieved. I mean, for a period of 14 years, one of the world's largest countries by population and and power and importance and money attempted to ban the consumption of alcohol for adults. That's that's a pretty wild experiment. It is pretty it, wild. Good, good. <laughs> I mean, it it failed in a variety of ways. There's some debate about whether Americans actually do drink less than other Western nations because of this. Hmm. That's possible. It's it's also possible we just have a lot more Southern Baptists than other Western nations. All the Southern um, Baptists so, I've met still drink wine, man. They, yeah. <laughs> but, but um, you know, yeah, I mean, it, I think all of that is is pretty debatable. Uh, what, what I see in this as a pattern, and maybe it's too wide a, a thing, but like now what you're showing is a history of the United States taking ideology to a radical extreme contra yeah. nature in a political wind that is ultimately self-destructive and so what happened there uh is happening now in a different way i'm sure you could probably pinpoint somewhere between here and there where these things happened as well and so uh, this gets back to i think another one of the points you've made in the past about how uh and is it a modern issue uh how everything has to be a a theory. Everything has to be a virtue. Everything is about good and evil all the time. And there is no just sort of today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we've talked about this on the show, but also privately is when everyone is from somewhere different or everyone is different from each other, there, there are so everything has to be adjudicated and there are just no givens. Right. So let's just say hypothetically that, you know, America in 1918, instead of being, you know, whatever, mostly British descended, but then partly not. And in large parts of major cities, not and whatever, that America is whatever, like a majority Italian country. Okay. So just a totally wild alternate terminal, you know, timeline here. 
Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it, maybe it's a happier place. Maybe it's a, <laughs> whatever, but um, prohibition just never comes up in that case. It just, it just never comes up. I mean, what, mm. what would be the point? What would we be talking about that? That has nothing to do with the way that we live. It just, it just never arises. Right. I mean, things become possible for historically, in this case, culturally specifiable reasons. That doesn't mean that they have to happen. That, that means that they're possible. And when you, when you, when you think about such an alternate timeline, what, what you're envisioning is something that, that could have been or under some completely different set of con, you know, historical conditions, that will expand your political imagination for the future too. Because it, it makes thinkable things that are currently unthinkable. But it, it also reveals to you something about the past, which is America is the way it is. And I, this is where I see, again, California simply an intensification of certain things about America, not as utterly distinct or weird, better weather, but an intensification is that America is the way it is because we have always had to adjudicate so many things because the Puritans weren't the same as the people in South Carolina, weren't the same as the people in Kentucky weren't the same as the people in Vermont, weren't the same as the people in Ohio and on and on and on it goes. And that goes all the way back. That has nothing to do with immigration from Germany or Italy or anything else. The attempt to have the whole big thing together is what has always made these kinds of ideological, these forms of ideological strife incessant in the same way that there's always rivalry between the French and the English or between the friend. I mean, just take a map, right? Germany is what? The size of Montana. Okay. Think about how many different kinds of Germans there are and how, how much adjudication there has been in German history ideologically to get it to be a single unitary thing. America is a continent basically with 300 plus million people now from all over the world. Why would this thing hold together or how could it hold together ideologically? That makes no sense to me. So when I, when I see prohibition, what I see is the future of what is currently still allegedly a project. But if you're telling me that you're going to get some guy that came from Ghana 15 years ago and somebody that's lived in New Hampshire since time out of mind and somebody that lives in Phoenix to all be like, yes, our democracy is dying in darkness. And to keep that as some kind of unifying ideology, that's going to matter to people in 40 years. I cannot see it. Well, it's, it's not going to be by being puritanical about things that aren't real. If there's anything that's going to bind those people together, it's going to be food supply and energy. It's going to be things that are real, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, democracy again, what, what is that? Uh, so, sorry to sound like a jerk, but what is that? Show me it. You can't point to democracy. You can't convince me it exists even at this point. Um, but food supply and energy, those are things that are real. And so what you, you dropped the name Puritan. I don't know if you meant to. I had just written it down. Uh, a puritanical, though, uh, this uh, approach to ideology as always necessary for every facet of life, yeah. because as you say, we are so diverse and that uh, we're trying to find ways to kind of bind together what maybe can't be bound together. And yet we're trying to encourage individuals where they are to form local right. communities where they do have a theological bent, ideally, right? But uh, 
this is kind of again to go back to where yeah. I started. You I, cannot be puritanical about things that are not real. And if I see something about the the way that we are, what was the word used earlier to describe young people? Uh, it was such a nice way of describing. Uh, it wasn't brash, but uh, the way our, our Discord conversations can sometimes go. Um, there's a level of uh, absolute certainty that all of it's right this way. Uh, that uh, I guess it, it lacks the. Um, the humility that we need uh, yeah. to, to to build, right? So, because I'm all for the building, like you're saying, like and and to believe that we can do amazing things, but it it, it can't be just my theory. It, it's got to be on things that are substantial. Uh, the king ends up being the king because he's got the bread and he's got the guns. Yeah, that, that that's how it works, right? I well, I I think that there's something basically unsocialized about people that live on the internet. And and that's that's a problem for all of us to one degree or another. It's especially a problem the younger you go, is that the way that they come into contact with life is not through sociability. And that that's not bulletproof. I, I think that I, just to give you a personal example, I think that I have missed out on certain things in life or had problems because I was raised to be quiet in the presence of people older than myself. I mean, absolutely chronologically older, not just like visibly older. And that's just the way it goes. But I would rather have that vice than come off as way too much, especially to older people right away. So it's not like the past was perfect or other ways are perfect, but it was a lot more natural than acquiring everything from the internet and therefore stating everything in a flat way that has nothing to do with sociability or, you know, response to another human being's face and gestures that goes along with this fact, which is that, you know, diversity, if I'm talking about it in colonial American terms is largely a couple different European Protestant ethnicities that are pretty close together. Many of them, even by the time of the revolution, I mean, my last name is German Roosevelt is a Dutch name. We're both, all of us speaking English by the time the revolution happens and, and intermarried and everything. Americanization is a real process, at least at that time, certainly. Diversity really isn't the problem here. <laughs> New England itself, as a covenanted society, as an ideologically unified project, always had these problems. And that is that ideology does not achieve the things that people think it will. Yeah. So even if everyone is totally orthodox Lutheran in your group that you have your church or whatever your state or your commune or whatever you're doing, please look up colonial New England because they have enormous problems in their churches and, and also politically with the fact that not everyone will opt into the project, certainly not all of your children in the same way and for the same reasons and to the same degree that you do. And even in your own generation, that won't happen. That is that ideological unity is not terribly scalable. This is why in contemporary American Christianity, house churches always have certain kinds of people in them because they're people that either have, you know, just hate a certain scale of Christian life, even a hundred people on a Sunday, or they're people that want a kind of closeness that simply is not possible in human polities even congregations, let alone counties and states and, and nations. And so New England is full, not only of covenanted people fully 
paid up, as it were, and utterly orthodox to a degree and with an intensity of public discussion of theology that if Lutherans were aware of it, they would, they would long for. But it's also full of dissenters. Rhode Island is populated with them originally. Vermont is populated with them originally. Western New York is populated with them originally. Those are most of my ancestors are some kind of Baptist or universalist or something. They're, they're opting out of a project of life unified between religion and politics that I think a lot of people want. They want something that they imagine was in the Middle Ages, but certainly that was attempted in colonial New England. And it, it failed. And that is because human beings are united by more, but also in a certain sense of the word, less than ideology. That's what holds them together. A place, family, habits, customs. When those things can't develop, you can't really hold people together, even if on paper they agree on everything. Right. Things that are real. Again, yeah. uh, just, just having you all agree to the answers in the multiple choice question at the test at the end of the book, and you all move somewhere in the middle of nowhere, like that's not going to work out. <laughs> uh, you, you're going to find out that your person's have far more diversity in them, even though you agree ideologically about all these other things, your personhoods are going to be so distinct. And if you don't have the capacity to work with other persons and to allow for um, uh, the disjointed nature of, of neighborhoods, right? Um, You're going to end up destroying each other. And that's where I just, as, as I continue to be part of this uh, conversation in the discord, which I like, I want it there. This to me seems like our own poison pill, not to go to Elon Musk here, but it is our, our poison pill issue is we, we, we so Lutherans like, well, if we just get all the answers, right, we'll be fine. And it's like, (laughs) no, actually what you're going to do is you're going to kill each other, you know, over, over things that might be important. I'm not saying they're not, um, but they, uh, they aren't necessarily again, real, like you said, uh, the shared space, uh, the shared habits, uh, the shared food, shared energy. Again, I think those two are just really big shared water supply. Um, those are the pieces that, that really, <laughs> yeah, that's going to be really big that drive you, right? That's what drives yeah, you. And then right. your belief that, uh, that uh, we share this. I mean, I had a conversation with a guy, um, he's one of the coaches at the jujitsu Academy. And we were talking about uh, Tiawaki and uh, and dogs and uh, you know what how much water you got uh, stored up and what your food supply and, and all this stuff and, and he's way more prepped than I am, mm-hmm. and and it turned to like neighborhood stuff and he basically was like yeah well, when it goes, um, you know it's 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 everyone for himself and uh, my neighbors you know I'm just gonna watch them kind of have trouble, and he didn't quite say it like that but it but I I, I say you know you know. Well, try to be a good king, you know? I mean, you maybe have to defend yourself from one neighbor, but maybe you do need to help the poor and all this. Um, uh, The point of that, again, is, you know, he saw everything as a threat around him and didn't didn't have this desire to to build and pull together. And some of that is uh, what this hyper-individuation that you're talking about. Rather than seeing like, no, no, those 12 houses, and he lives in this little neighborhood. It's not, it's out in the county. It's 12 houses. Like, dude, you got the most defensible village I could imagine. This is great. But you actually want to have your neighbors with you, right, on, on that yeah. point. And so how do you, how do you become the kind of person that's able to work with the guy who you don't like him? You don't like your neighbor. That's fine. But there's, you know, there's an enemy out there who wants your water supply, right? 
And and that's the question that we Lutherans, I think, have to ask not only about what Lutheranism is, I'm not trying to, to go away from the Book of Concord, please don't hear me saying that, but we have to be a little more aware of, of what this really means um, and stop acting like we're in that place where the biggest problem we got is the Methodists have the wrong, you know, Christology or something like this. I think the chief consideration in any level of an answer to that is scale. So on the scale of your own person or on the scale of your immediate family, it's entirely possible for you to just ban the production, you know, purchase or consumption of alcohol, totally scalable. And if you want to do that, go for it. That's not really possible, probably even for your extended family, let alone your, your county where they'll just drive across the county line or your state or your nation. So when you're thinking about these kinds of problems, part of the thing that maybe induces the most humility, but also the greatest clarity about what should be said. So if I'm running for president of the United States, I'm going to have a much less particular platform than, or a platform specific to the federal government and its operation than if I'm running for a governor of a state or something like that, because I'm not going to try to argue to every single person who votes in the United States that, you know, <laughs> we should have a flat tax or something you know, whatever. I mean, go for it if you want to. But the platform that that boys are boys and girls are girls is just much more scalable and achievable than the platform that we should return to whatever my, you know, hobby horse is from, you know, early American politics or something, even if I'm right about it, you know. So there's a certain realism and humility induced by thinking about human beings and the scale on which you're trying to achieve something with other human beings that will not be yours if you think purely in terms of what do I want to do or what do I believe is right? Those are necessary questions, but for working with other human beings, also for understanding history, scale and how human beings react to things at different scales is enormously important. We did like well over an hour on prohibition and we didn't even get to the importance of organized crime syndicates. Listening to a brief history of <laughs> yeah, power. We'll next time. You know where to find us, sir. You wouldn't be here.